Hello and welcome to The G Word. My name is Vivian Parry. I'm the Head of Engagement at Genomics England and our subject today is one very close to my heart, science communication and especially, of course, genetics. Now, the pandemic put words like variant and whole genome sequencing on every front page. People rapidly became familiar with well-evident science, but even with a wealth of high-quality information available to them, some people remained highly sceptical and negative. Why? To talk about the findings of the recent Genetic Society survey and a fascinating paper in PLOS, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Adam Rutherford, geneticist, author and broadcaster, Professor Lawrence Hurst, Professor of Evolutionary Genetics and the Director of the Milner Center for Evolution, who was the author of the PLOS paper, and Dr. Christina Fonseca, Head of Engagement and Communications at the Genetic Society and the lead author for the PLOS paper. So, Christina, let's start with you. Why did you conduct a survey at the Genetic Society? This came out of the back of the Genetic Society celebration for the centenary in 2019. So we had a whole program of events. And one of the things that we were interested in was to have something that would have legacy and that could be used by the genetics community. And that's the reason why we decided to do the survey. We wanted to know and have a framework that could help not just the genetic society, but science communicators and policy makers in order to be able to know what was the state of science communication in genetics in the UK. Obviously, this was pre-pandemic, so the idea that we had for the survey changed a bit. Um, It was quite interesting that then we had the pandemic started and we kind of had to change focus and we used COVID as its own natural experiment. And I think it worked really wonderfully. And what was the outcome? The outcome was that basically for all the things that we tested, that we found, and I think um, Loris can also talk a little bit more about that, we found that there's people with opposing attitudes, so either very positive or very negative attitudes, they have a very high self-confidence about their knowledge. So that was quite interesting. We also found that attitudes to genetics have increased during the pandemic, which is great news for um, genetics and science in general. When you say attitude, do you mean knowledge or do you mean attitude? No, just a, a, a positive attitude towards genetics and genetics and some of the genetic technologies. And um, in terms of knowledge, we do find that there's an increased knowledge, but we do find also that, for instance, I find this quite interesting. 30% of our sample did not know what PCR was and 30% also did not know that COVID was caused by a virus. So even though we have all of this exposure to all of um, the COVID information, there was still a third of our sample that did not heard about these very, very key points of information. So Lawrence, take us on a bit to the PLOS paper and what you said in that. So I think one needs to backtrack a little to understand a broader framing. That broader framing is science communication through the 80s and 90s ran under a thing called the deficit model. And the presumption of this is that if you ask why do some people not accept well-accepted science, it's because they don't know the well-accepted science. Uh, And in fact, in multiple survey works, you find that there is indeed a correlation between what people know about science and their general attitude towards it. So that looks sound. However, after the 80s and 90s, people then thought, okay, clearly the way to go is just tell people the science, they get it, and they will accept it. 
uh, sort of, if you know science, you love science sort of thing. But it became fairly rapidly clear that enterprises like that were failing, that simply telling people information did not engender uh, any acceptance. And in fact, people discovered things called backfire effects, whereby if you try and tell people information, you actually make things worse. Uh, They become more entrenched in their prior understandings than they were. Now, over the last five years, there have been two key papers, one in 2018, one in 2019, that uh, then point to a different resolution of this potential problem. Uh, The problem being why, faced with the same information, do some people are very strongly negative and some have very strongly positive information. If you think about it psychologically, I mean, that's a great psychological quandary. You know, how do do people seeing the same information uh, end up with such different views? So these two papers, 2018, 2019, both came independently to the same conclusion, and that is if you look at the individuals who are most negative, it is true that they don't know very much. So if you just look at straightforward factual knowledge, uh, it tends to be quite low, uh, as we saw that the basis of the deficit model. But more important, if you then ask them questions about what they think they know, how well they think they understand the science, what these papers found was that those most negative believe that they understand the science. So what we were wanting to do is first, can we replicate this in the context of genetics? And yes, we could absolutely replicate that effect uh, for different questions, uh, slightly overlapping, but actually turns out not as overlapping as you might have imagined. And we all get this, always get the same effect, that the ones who are most negative tend not to know all that much, but tend to believe they know an awful lot. We were also more particularly interested in what you might call the natural history of those who accept science. Because this is actually the domain that, for the most part, as far as we can see, has not been well studied. And it turns out that those who are most accepting of science actually, if anything, even believe even more that they do, in fact, understand the science. However, they are warranted in their beliefs. So if you then look at their textbook knowledge, so we asked 12 sort of textbook knowledge questions, they typically score very highly on those. So what we then have is a model which is different from the deficit model. And what it says is those that know that they don't know do not take a negative attitude. So it's not a fear of the unknown. Those that should be the individual have a great fear of the unknown. Those who know they don't know tend to be neutral. Those who believe that they know tend to be positive if they understand the science and tend to be negative when they don't understand the science. This being said, there's an awful lot of variation in the data. This is survey data, so we don't expect perfect correspondences all the time. But it did strike me that uh, we now have a series of similarly designed experiments, all giving actually more or less the same results. That is that uh, those most negative tend to have overconfidence in their understanding of the science. Now, Adam, you're the author of at least three, to my certain knowledge, brilliant books on genetics and genomics, hugely popular, big sellers. And presumably, people read them and they understand them, and yet some of them still remain highly negative. And you have a lot of trolls, I know. (laughs) I mean, do you despair? I mean, is there anything that you can do? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question, and I don't really know the answer to to who, what sort of valence people have about reading popular science books. The sample sizes are very skewed. So even an exceptionally well-selling book about genetics is a, 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 a tiny proportion compared to someone listening on the radio or watching on TV or watching a mainstream film about it. And also, there's a huge selection bias. You know, people aren't going to buy my books about genetics, about the history of genetics. What, just to be annoyed? Have, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly, who have zero interest in the subject. 
But I think it talks more broadly about how we talk about genetics and what we think genetics is. And, and, and the, a thing that I think is, is very clear if you work in science communication, as, as, as you do as well, Viv, which is the disconnect between what we think we know within the walls of the academy and what we think people outside, real world people, sometimes I refer to them as civilians, which is probably not the best way to describe the general public. And I think that there's a, well, here's the thing, right? I think all scientists believe that their subject is the least well represented in the media. But I've been doing this a long time. And, and I think that when it comes down to it, genetics, which is a relatively young science and really in a sophisticated way, you know, a mere few decades old. But what is it at its absolute core? It's thinking about families, it's thinking about inheritance, and it's thinking about sex. And these have been the major preoccupations of humans for thousands of years. And it's only really in the last century, really only in the last 30 years or so, that we've had a sophisticated understanding of how these things work, if indeed we have it at all. You know, Jim Al-Khalili can talk about quantum physics, and it bears absolutely no relationship to one's lived life, important though it, I'm sure it is, if I understood it. Brian Cox can point at the universe and say that there's a black hole 10 billion light years away, and it has absolutely no experiential effect. Whereas if you start telling people how inheritance works within families and within populations, you're counter, you're attempting to counter hundreds, maybe thousands of years of, of cultural baggage. And I think that that is really the core problem. So like I said, all scientists think their own field is least well represented. I'm with, with no skin in the game, with absolute neutrality, no bias whatsoever, I'm 100% convinced that genetics is the least well represented. And to a certain extent, that's, you know, that's, that's on me, right? That's on us. We're all responsible for communicating science beyond the walls of the academy. And our jobs will never be done because this is a, a hard game. It turns out biology is much more complex than we thought, and simple models of explanation are not... Uh, well, they, they don't necessarily tally with what we actually know. And of course, we have to understand that there are areas, there are lots of ethical areas, for instance, in genetics, and it's perfectly okay to take a position on one side or the other. And there are lots of you know, different nuances. And we can't say to people, yes, you should always do this or you should always do that. But I guess we want them to take those views based on some knowledge. But are we going to ever get people who are so negative, Lawrence, about genomics and about what they think about it? Are we ever going to get them to change their minds? Or should we just move on and just concentrate on the people who, who know nothing at all? It's a great question. And there's quite a lot of discussion at the moment within the domains of science communication as to whether we should, in fact, be attempting to address those most negative. What we clearly see is there are some very loud, uh, very prominent voices that are very negative. This can skew our view of the world. And I think one of the things that's come out of the survey very much is that we have been ignoring what you might think of as the silent majority. So it turns out when we ask these 2,000 individuals, 1%, 2% sit in the most negative camp. But 40 to 50% said they wanted to hear more science. Uh, another 50% or so said that they think the amount of science coverage is right. And only less than 10% said they thought there was too much science. 
So I think we are doing ourselves a disservice to think that we only talk to the one, two percent. Now, that being said, we can then ask questions about how could you talk to the, the one, two percent? And this is an experimental question. And to the best of my knowledge, except for de-radicalization programs, no one has found a way to talk to them. There's a large European survey going on at the moment on so-called conspiracy theorists and what their mindsets look like. And for the most part, you can't have a conversation because actually the evidence doesn't matter. One of the things that's come out of this European survey is that for this strange 1% to 2%, they actually enjoy the fact that their theories are not falsifiable. So there is no evidence that you could give them that would contradict it. And they always have a get-out clauses. You would say that, wouldn't you, and blame the messenger rather than the message. So I think to a large extent, no, we can't have general science communication trying to talk to that 1-2%. Let's focus on the others. And you're absolutely right. We're not, we're not here to dictate to people what their ethical opinion should be. What we could do is say, at least could we come to a position where your ethical positions are being based on good scientific information, the best scientific information that we have. And I think that's really where science communicators can have a major role. And as I said, most of the population is actually open to this. They want to hear from us. And I think that's that's then the way to go. The question then is, again, it's another experimental question. If we decide we're not talking to the 1%, 2% or are most negative, how do we talk to uh, the ones who do want to listen to us? Now, we could preach to the converted. That would be relatively pointless. Uh, so there's not a lot of point going to the other end of the distribution and go, you all agree with me, let me give you more information, because um, that's not going to change the world. There is, however, a lot of interest now within the science communication in the idea that what we ought to be doing is actually telling people clearly what the consensus view actually is. So one sees this all the time in advertising, you know, nine out of 10 cats prefer, et cetera, et cetera. There's now a considerable body of experimental evidence suggesting if you lead off science communication by telling people that 97% of climate change scientists agree, that that actually has more of an effect than, for example, telling people what the evidence for climate change is, or at least just telling people what the evidence for climate change is. So getting over the uh, consensus science to start with, there was a recent meta-analysis of, I think, about 20 to 30 or so experimental investigations that showed a clear effect of just telling people what the consensus actually is the idea is then a gateway into opening minds. I mean, we do have a fatal flaw as scientists, which is we think other people ought to know what we know. And actually, a lot of what we know, they don't need to know. And I started off in genomics ooh, a long time ago, and I've realised that the more I talk about genomics, the less I talk about, you know, I never talk about base pairs but yet there's a lot of geneticists who want to tell people all about base pairs. And if they don't know about that, then obviously, you know, they don't know enough. And, and maybe the way that we're presenting our information is not actually the most conducive to the public. Christina, you're nodding there. I think it's important to also remember that there's some people that are just not interested in science and it doesn't matter what they're going to do. (laughs) I know, but uh, there was a a really interesting uh, conversation on Twitter on on the Genetic Society that someone was saying, 
And I can actually see myself in that example that she didn't like football and she was not interested in football, did not know anything about football. And it's not because of a lack of information. And I do the same thing. You're reading the newspaper and you just skip that section. And so the problem is not the information. The information is there. You're reaching those people. Those people just don't necessarily want to know about it. They don't necessarily go and engage with what you are saying. So it's sad because you, as scientists, we just think that this is amazing and it, everyone should know about science and it's so interesting and there's applications for your day-to-day life. But at the same time, people might just not want to know. And I think that's very difficult to, to come to terms with. And it's a bit like, you know, how your boiler works or your pension. I mean, you don't need to know it until your boiler breaks down. And that is the moment. And very often, you know, I see parents who have a child born with a rare disease, a rare genetic disease, and they get very rapidly up to speed when they need to have the information. Uh, Adam, do you think we're all guilty of trying to push too much science down (laughs) people's throats when they don't actually want it? I mean, maybe when it's not the right time frame. I mean, we're asking an incredibly complex question, but where and there are so many different factors in, involved. But also something that we haven't really mentioned here that Christina mentioned that that, she, that the, the the original conception of this survey was pre-pandemic. Now, still in the age of the internet, though, in the age of rampant conspiracy theories and huge amounts of disinformation, and due to the very nature of the providers of that information, social media polarizing amplified polarizing um, views and we, and we see we see that as a result in in the paper itself that you get further amplification or reinforcement entrenchment of polarizing views which is exactly how twitter and facebook and and youtube actually work by design because that's how that's how they monetize those systems we also know very well and this has been the case since the 17th century that our politicians are largely uninterested in science, systematic lack of investment in science education and science funding over successive governments for for a long time, but also politicians who are frequently, well, not scientifically literate. I think it's really crucial to remember Lawrence's point, which is this, this idea of the silent majority. Most people trust establishment figures of science, authority, medicine, um, and we are generally okay to to get on with our, our jobs, even though in many cases, like I said at the beginning, we might be pushing against cultural tides that are generations or hundreds or thousands of, of, of years old. But then the, the COVID was an unprecedented event in, in, in modern history. And all of a sudden, we're thrown into a world where, like, as you introduced it at the beginning, all of a sudden, the science, the science, as if we talked about the science, as if it's one thing, is absolutely front and centre in daily briefings. There was a moment early during the pandemic when everyone in the press started talking about exponential, just the word exponential. And it it was a sort of interest. It's it's hard for scientists not to be, well, a little, possibly a little bit supercilious or a little bit sneery when think things that are sort sort of basic science education part of maths suddenly become the subject of daily scrutiny or or news media coverage. The idea that only 30% of people in the survey didn't know what PCR was, I was amazed it wasn't higher than that. I mean, it may be a screwdriver for people like us, but why on earth would you know what PCR was if you spend absolutely no time 
sequencing DNA, which, let's face it, the majority of humans in history have not been in that situation. So I think there's one key element as well, which is a sort of failure of a broader understanding of what science is, not necessarily genetics, but science more, more generally. But the notion that science is continually changing, that we're constantly updating and revising our views depending on the, on the evidence. And I think we saw that unfold in real time during the pandemic. The whole publication system changed. So we're, we're still sort of trying to understand the, the long-term repercussions of that. But follow the science, you know, whatever that was, the, the hopefully changing policies in response to the incoming data. But again, there's always going to be a minority, which is probably the same minority who are never going to get on board with these types of ideas, who regard the fact that science is a self-correcting, ever-changing thing as a weakness, when actually it is its core strength. And I think we saw that in real time, and I think the, the results of the survey in the paper are sort of part of that framework of not really understanding what science is. There's actually a lot to learn from vaccine confidence work because vaccine, it always strikes me, the vaccine confidence and confidence in genomics, there's a lot of overlap there. And what was striking to me was that there were some people who were hesitant and actually you just had to answer their questions and be prepared to answer them, you know, twice or three times and then finally when they talk to their friends, then they would be happy to go off and have a vaccine. And maybe we should learn from some of the approaches that we used in overcoming vaccine hesitancy in genomics. Christina, how do you think that we should be moving forward and particularly addressing the 75%, in other words, not the people who've got a genetic disease who are interested because of that, not the people who are interested in science, but the 85% or so of the population who actually don't care or are completely disengaged or even hostile? Um, I would love to have the answer for that question because then I would be such a great science communicator. Um, <laughs> it is very difficult. I think it's just we need to be less preachy and just engage with the audience and just try to address their concerns. Um, and I think that sometimes scientists... Are, do a disservice to themselves. I think we spent so long trying to explain, for instance, with the vaccines, that vaccines take a long time to be developed, that it takes a long, long time to actually go from bench to actually being given to a patient. And then suddenly, during the pandemic, there was a vaccine within less than a year. And so we're giving contradictory information to people because we did not explain what was happening, all of the security measures that were still being taken into place. But it was just like a rapid succession so that we could have a vaccine as um, fast as possible, but in a secure way. So I think that it's very difficult to answer that question. But at the same time, I think that we need to just engage and listen to what people want to know and how they want to know. I don't think that there's a an easy answer to that, to be completely honest. And there are lots of different segments of the public. I mean, we shouldn't think of the public as a homogeneous whole. I mean, there are, you know, young white men, for instance, have very different attitudes to 
I don't know, a group of older Caribbean ladies. I mean, there are, you know, there's, there's a lot of different groups. And certainly Genomics England is doing work with Professor Anna Middleton at uh, Welcome Connecting Science to our project Being Human to try and address that. But in our last few minutes, I just wanted to ask each of you, what do you think the strategy should be for the future? We've got this you know, hugely interesting work that's a great basis for going forward. Lawrence, what do you think we should be doing? One of the things that's very clear is that in presenting information, the trustworthiness of the voice is actually very important. When you talk about the vaccine hesitant, for example, lots of good evidence suggests that getting that information from somebody who knows, who is your contemporary, who you can relate to, is important. We've got experimental evidence in schools that authority voices telling you that evolution is true matters. It's not the evidence that matters, it's uh, the trust in the person telling you. So I think we have to work hard to uh, generate that trust and use trusted figures. David Attenborough is one of those trusted figures, for example. That's why people listen to him. Um, But that also means, for example, not having access to grind, being honest when we don't know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for the most part, actually, the communication through COVID was actually rather good. They told you what they know, they told you what they didn't know, and they told you what they're doing to find out. And when you're not approaching consensus science, I think that is the way to go. So I think we need to think less about what exactly we're saying and much more about how we should be engendering trust in what we are saying and that we are trusted voices. As it happens... Academics are trusted voices. <laughs> one of the things we did ask is, who who would you trust? And academics came out number one. So big tick for me. Right, you're top of the pops there, Lawrence. Uh, Christina, what 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 strategies would you take at the Genetics Society? I think media literacy. I think it's quite important. I think empowering people to actually gain crucial skills to learn how to analyze and critique and respond to information. There's a lot of information. As we said, there's a minority with really loud voices. And if we just empower people to learn where their information is coming from and to actually go and check for themselves, I think it will be a huge advantage for the science communication field. Adam, your strategies for the future, apart from writing more books. (laughs) This is good because I think all three of us are giving a sort of rounded picture because we're all saying slightly different things. I I think that's a fundamental change in how we teach science from an early age. I think there's there's a couple of key things in school age teaching of science which we get wrong. One is the probabilistic. We just don't teach probability at at all, really, at at school. And the, the, the nature of science being conditional and that we can actually say confident things whilst recognizing that they are subject to being incorrect in the future is, as I said, science's strength. And I think that that, if that is inculcated into culture much more, and I know that sounds like almost like it's contradicting what Lawrence was saying about the authority or, 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 you know, how things are said with authority. I think those two things can sit quite comfortably next to each other. I don't need to know how the boiler works. I just need to believe that the guy who, who comes to fix it, it no, does. But I think recognizing what science is and what probability and chance and the, 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 the complexities of the real world, rather than trying to answer complex questions with simple answers, I think that needs to be bred into society from a very young age. I think for me, one of the things that I think is that we shouldn't try to be right all the time. I think sometimes we come across as we have all the answers 
And if somebody disagrees, then that's just because they're stupid. And I think that's an attitude that actually really doesn't help. And I've seen it quite a lot. And I think that, you know, we, we, we really need to embrace people and understand that they have fears and worries, ease those concerns without actually telling them they're wrong and stupid to have concerns in the first place. So I think that, you know, there's a huge amount to do. And I'd really like to see the whole genomics community get together to work on this rather than us all go off and do our own often quite contradictory things on a small scale. Because I think we need to be thinking about big scale for these kind of messages. So we've got to the end of our time. It's very good of you all to have been with us today. Thank you so much uh, to Adam Rutherford, Lawrence Hurst and Christina Fonseca. And if you want to know more about genomics or genetics, then the G Word has an absolutely fantastic selection of podcasts for you to browse through and you'll find those on your favourite podcast platform. In the meantime, it's goodbye for me and thank you to our contributors once again. Bye for now.